What a week it was in terms of global price data. We started out the week with China and its producer and consumer prices that were thoroughly deflationary. In fact, producer prices that were so deflationary, we don't see them outside periods like 2009, the early part of 2009, when the economy was experiencing a great quote-unquote recession. We ended the week with U.S. export prices that are dropping at a record rate, record year-over-year year rate. In between China and export prices, we have producer prices from Japan that are suddenly deflationary, as well as what in the minds of many is the biggest one, the June CPI, which we just talked about in a previous video. But either way, at best, you have disinflation all throughout consumer prices, all throughout the world, and at worst, we're seeing more and more signs of the deflationary recession that we've been, we've been long expecting, and it continues to show up all across the global economy. And yet, there are those who are convinced we're experiencing a soft landing, and they see the consumer price disinflation in particular as evidence for it, including as what uh, Mohammed El Arian said just yesterday, you cannot get in the way right now of the soft landing narrative. That narrative is building momentum, and it comes from a lot of different places, but as consumer prices are going becoming disinflationary, it's, it's understandable in one respect that you would think, well, maybe that's just a soft landing. After all, Jay Powell continues to tell us that the labor market and the U.S. economy in particular remain resilient. So if we have disinflation in consumer prices and a really low unemployment rate, maybe that's the soft landing. Yet there are those who take it another step further and say this is still great inflation number two, but great inflation number two is just pausing for the moment. So yes, we recognize that the current numbers are disinflationary, but that's just an interim step between the, between the first step of great inflation two and what's likely to be the second and worst step. And that comes from, like the soft landing narrative to an extent, misunderstanding inflation itself, as well as misdiagnosing the fact that we have been experiencing a supply shock over the last couple of years. And that's not a semantic difference. The idea of legitimate monetary inflation, boy, I still hate that term, but monetary inflation, which is not the same as quote unquote inflation of a supply shock. And this is not a semantic, it's not an argument over semantics. It's an argument over exactly what we're talking about here. Is this great inflation number two? Are we just pausing between the first stage and the second stage? Is there a soft landing here? Or what is it about supply shocks and what should we expect from the end of the supply shock? And if there is a consistent pattern with how supply shocks end, are we seeing that right now? And when we talk about in particular export price prices and global trade, U.S. export prices down at a record amount, as well as the trade data that the Chinese just reported, Great inflation? No, there's none of that. We've got the supply shock case and we've got a whole bunch of data and a whole bunch of history to talk about, which tells us what to expect about the deflationary recession risk. But first, I'm Jeff. This is you. God damn it. But first, I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. If you're interested, Eurodollar University has memberships available, exclusive content where we go over what money is, in the euro dollar context. It's not what you think it is. It's certainly not what they talk about on all across social media and the mainstream. What is the euro dollar? What's supposed to do? Why it isn't doing what it's supposed to do? And what that means for today as well as tomorrow. We also have research subscriptions 
a daily briefing that I contribute to Markets Insider Pro, a daily deep dive analysis at the Eurodollar University website where we go into all of these things because economists and economics have done such a poor job of understanding and getting people to understand all the money and macro topics that are absolutely essential to how the world, not just the economy, but the whole world operates today and moving forward. All the information, memberships, and research subscriptions, eurodollar.university. Now, before we get to the collapse in export prices in the U.S., as well as the collapse in exports from China to the rest of the world, and what all of those mean as far as 2023, let's talk about supply shocks and what those actually are, where they come from. Let's, uh, specifically, let's talk about the one in 1946, 47, and 48, which was a transitory supply shock, even though it lasted a couple years. Many people are taught to believe that consumer prices, if they accelerate, that can only be from one source, and that's the central bank. The Federal Reserve must have printed any money, printed some money, or the federal government has gotten central banks to do it on their behalf. But that's not what happens in a supply shock case. In fact, it doesn't actually take any money printed to get consumer prices to accelerate wildly, just like we saw in 1946 and 47. Well, we didn't see that personally. I certainly wasn't alive, and not, there's not many people alive left who remember 1946 and 1947 and 1948 and what ended, ended up happening in 1949. And what should have happened in 1949, at least according to these modern theories of a Phillips curve as well as expectations, why wasn't there a great inflation number one beginning in 1947? That's something that you should ask yourself because all of the ingredients that are supposedly going into this great inflation two that weren't in great inflation one, by the way, they were present in the late 1940s. We look back at 1946 and 47, the CPI was under 2% in early 1946. And then in March of 1947, it's up at an almost, it's rising at a 20% annual rate. Year over year in March of 1947, the CPI rose 19.67%. The unemployment rate was incredibly low at 4%. And according to modern theories of how inflation is supposed to work, with that level of increase and the fact that it sustained itself over the next year and a half, doesn't that suggest exactly what the Federal Reserve is afraid of today? Expectation, psychology. You got a low unemployment rate. You got stubbornly persistent CPI rates, which the public and businesses and everybody over the, all over the economy are going to normalize to, and therefore they're going to get used to consumer price advances, and they're going to change their behavior as if inflation is now a permanent part of the economic landscape. Therefore, at least according to these modern theories, great inflation number one should have shown up in 1948 and 1949. But instead, by, we, by the time we get to just July 1947, the consumer price rate falls. Some of that is on base effects, but it was down to 12.1%, so still relatively high in, in the summer of 47. And then a year later, in the summer of 40, 1940, uh, 1948, the CPI is still rising at almost a double-digit rate. But after July 1948, suddenly we get more disinflation to the point that we get into 1949. Prices are falling again. September 48, the CPI was rising at a 6.5% annual rate. 
But by January 1949, it's down to 1.27%. In May of 1945, we finally get a negative year-over-year change in the CPI. So it wasn't great inflation number two, despite the tight labor market and what should have been highly unanchored inflation expectation. Why wasn't it? What, what is the difference here? What are we missing? Well, the, what we're missing is, unlike the 1970s and the actual great inflation, there was no money printing. There was no introduction and constant, constant supply of credit and money in the U.S. economy. But that doesn't mean there wasn't money available for the U.S. economy. It just wasn't inflationary money printing. Instead, what we see is enormous, and I mean gigantic levels of savings that were built up throughout the Great Depression and in particular through World War II. In World War II, because you couldn't really buy anything, nothing was really available, especially consumers. So you have this massive buildup in savings throughout the 30s and really the 1940s that once the war was over, suddenly Americans wanted to spend again. But they wanted to spend again at a time when much of the world's supply was ravaged, destroyed, and much of U.S. supply was focused on rebuilding. So this huge increase in demand from savings that was that's the supply side of the economy was unable to meet and in the middle, the way to rec the only way to reconcile those two imbalances is through price increases. Not inflation, but a supply shock. As, as Americans and American consumers began to spend down their savings that they had built up, demand went through the roof, but supply just wasn't available. And it created conditions that are every bit similar to what we see today. The economy was locked down for the pandemic and savings went up, not because of Americans saving money that they had earned, but as the government stuffed a lot of people with cash that they didn't otherwise need. So lots of savings, supply restrictions, all of those are actually, all of those are, are very eerily the same today as in the late 1940s. But what you see in the 1940s, what really made all the difference once the savings ran out, so did the quote-unquote inflation. The savings rate dipped down to around 4% in the middle of 1947. So Americans very quickly went through their savings because prices ate up a lot of it. And by the time we got to the middle of 1947, which remember, that was the peak rate on the CPI. This is not random coincidence. As soon as savings started to run out, Americans pulled back in spending and as they pulled back in spending, quite naturally, consumer price rates started to go down. Some of it was base effects, but even the, the, the near-term numbers show that as demand diminished, as Americans started to rebuild their savings, prices and price pressures diminished substantially too. To the point that we get to 1948, Americans are still building up their savings and eventually it becomes too much, especially as supply starts to come online, prices begin to soften a lot more, but we don't just get into a gentle soft landing in the second half of 1948 heading into 1949. What instead happens, because the imbalances were so huge, because the volatility all across the economy, not just in terms of prices, but in other economic fundamental variables too, because it was a highly unstable period, 1948 and really 1949 turned into one of the worst recessions in the post-war history. Now, it wasn't the Great Depression 2.0, as many had feared, 
because of there were some fundamental factors that we don't have today that were supporting the economy and its downside and its downturn that would then unleash the prosperity of the 1950s. So there's a tremendous difference here that we need to keep in mind too. But the key point here, once the savings ran out in 1947, so did the inflation, but it didn't turn on a dime. It took quite some time for that transition. Americans built up their savings. No more income were coming in or not enough income was coming in to offset the supply or the price, the consumer price increases and eventually nasty recession, a nasty recession that was probably required to normalize and equalize all of those imbalances. That's where we get into the numbers that we see today. We're starting to look at more of this normalizing to the savings have left, the savings have been, have been spent in the United States. We saw that last year in particular where the savings rate got down really low and it has started to move back up over the second half of last year, which not coincidentally is the same time when consumer price disinflation and producer price deflation have been registering all across the global economy to the point that we see especially trade prices because trade is most susceptible to these types of situations. Trade prices that are at absolute extremes as well as trade data at absolute extremes pointing us in the direction of a 1949 type event, except without the 1950 bounce back that we had that led to a period of really unparalleled prosperity in the 1950s into the 1960s before we actually got to the real great inflation in the middle 1960s. That's what we don't have today, which is what makes all of these, these, these numbers and these results ever more frightening. So U.S. export prices, U.S. import prices too, but export prices registered their fourth straight drop in the month of June. They're up, they were down 0.95% month over month in, the, in, in June after uh, four straight monthly drops after a two month rebound in January, February, which is consistent with China reopening and, and the resurrection of sentiment in Europe. But on a year over year basis, 12%, minus 12% year over year, which is the worst in all of export price data that goes back 40 some years or almost 40 years. So global trade recession there but it's not just global trade recession. It's a globally synchronized or increasingly synchronized global deflationary recession. That you can see from China. Not only did Chinese report highly deflationary producer prices, deflationary consumer prices up through the month of June. They also just reported their trade statistics also for the month of June, which were just, they were just bad. Year over year exports fell by 12.4%, which is one of the worst trade numbers in modern Chinese economic history, which goes along with what we're seeing in US export prices. Global demand for trade has fallen off sharply. And so prices are adjusting accordingly, just like they did in 48 and 49. And 12.4%, really, you only see those types of rates, rates during the worst economic circumstances, except when you, you know, some of the months in there that have to do with the golden week holidays and the base effects that that creates, but you strip those away, 12.4%, that's one of the worst numbers in modern Chinese history, which is not a good sign for the global economy. Outbound trade exports to Europe, those dropped 12.9% year over year in the month of June. And here's a big one again, 
U.S. exports from China to the United States plummeted by 23.7% year over year in the month of June. One of the worst numbers there as well. Imports weren't any better from China because China's economy is struggling. It's struggling with internal factors as well as this global deflationary recession, both of which are really pressuring the Chinese economy to the point where imports, they were down 6.8% year over year in June, which was worse than the 4.5% year over year rate in May. So we don't have any of the any of the ingredients necessary for a great inflation too, because there isn't the money printing. Instead, like what according to modern economic theory should have been great inflation number one, but was instead just a supply shock, we have a lot in common with 1946, 47, 48, and unfortunately 1949, heading toward a deflationary recession, but without the the extra added uh, background where we had a healthy and reviving and thriving economy heading into the 1950s, where in the 2010s leading into the 2020s, we had the great, great recession, great quote unquote recession that never really ended. It just got interrupted by a supply shock, which many people understandably confused for an inflationary period. I'm Jeff, this is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, a huge thank you, Eurodollar University research subscribers, Markets Insider Pro research subscribers, and of course, all our Eurodollar University members. And until next time, take care.